0: Podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon, and this week we're going to be talking about the Big Four—not only Big Four now, but the Big Four in history. This is inspired by something Ronnie O'Sullivan said during the Northern Ireland Open about uh, the best Big Four. That's coming up. I'm joined by Phil Yates. Uh, it's, it's a momentous day, Phil, actually, because. We've reached the last day of qualifying for the German Masters. Who thought we'd live so long?
1: Well, it's a little bit like the Berlin, Paris, New York and London marathons combined. (laughs) Is it the first time since those labyrinthine qualifiers at Blackpool where the actual qualifying competition for an event is going to last
0: maybe twice as long as the real event? It's been extraordinary, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, listen, we know we've lost a few tournaments because of the pandemic. That's nobody's fault. Um, And, okay, so this is a way of getting snooker on the internet and it's a way of, okay, people can watch it and whatever. But I hope this is not the future. Um, You know, qualifiers used to be a means to end, but it used to be about actually rushing through them on as many tables as possible to get to the event. Um, Now, there are positives in doing it this way, that World Snook, I'm sure, are earning money from the streaming. Players actually think of their logo deals, they're actually worth more if they're being seen, you know, more chance of being seen this way. And our dear friends, the referees, are earning more money as well. So all, that's all good. But I think most even hardened Stuka fans would think it's gone on a long time. Nine days for, <laughs> to qualify for a five-day tournament. Se- seems like a lot.
1: Yeah, and also, one has to say, the real positive here has been the fact that the players who get through the first qualifying round, because, of course, in the German Masters, it plays down to 32. The players who get down... And get through the first qualifying round. Haven't had to hang around in Canuck. They've had to play the second round the next day. So that really has improved things. Yeah. Generally speaking, though, I think in a in a post-COVID era, we don't want to see any more of this. It, as you say, is just dragging it out for
0: dragging it out's sake. Well, we are ripped from today's headlines because our first email is about an incident last night in the qualifying. We're recording this on on Tuesday. Uh, Ian Lewis, he says, as I write this, Ronnie O'Sullivan is, is losing 4-0 to Hussain Bafayi in the German Masters qualifiers. And in the fifth frame, he's just smashed the Reds open from the break. He looks about as interested as me watching Love Island. He got me thinking, could this be Ronnie's last season? I'm, cl- I'm clear he isn't going to need to go to Q school, but will he just walk away? A lacklustre performance in the Northern Ireland Open. No entry into the British Open. unlikely likely now not to qualify for the German Masters. Well, of course, he lost 5-0, ultimately. Uh, he says, Ronnie's picked and chosen events in the past, but this time it feels different in the way he's conducting himself. Maybe it's just a bad patch mentally and he'll come back, but it certainly doesn't look good at the moment. I think the first thing to say here, thanks for the email, Ian, is Hussain Vefai played really well. I mean, he had a 1-4-1 and mustn't take anything away from his performance. But obviously, when Ronnie loses 5-0, which is a rarity in itself, people are going to look at his side of it, And people, I'm sure, have seen online... the the shot of him (laughs) smashing the pack at the start of the fifth frame. The thing about that was he actually potted potted one and landed plum on the black, but uh, that didn't come to much. And clearly, you know, it told you he wasn't in a great frame of mind. He's not the only person who's done that, of course. I mean, Neil Robertson did it in China against Joe Perry a few years ago. He wasn't feeling great about things then. Stephen Maguire last year year in Milton Keynes, thoroughly fed up, did it. So, you know, other people have done that as well. I don't think it'll be his last season. No, I think... Here's my view on it, Okay, I think... You go back to last year, he won the World Championship. And I think everything since then has been a bit of a come down. I mean, obviously the behind closed doors snooker, you know, it's hard to get motivated for maybe. He was in five finals, by the way, last season. Um, but w- winning the World Championship is such a big deal, particularly as he hadn't won it for seven years. And it looked like possibly he wouldn't win it again. I think a lot of people felt that. Um, it reminded me a little bit of when Mark Williams won it for the third time. And after that, he sort of t- tailed off a bit, although he's come back to life this year. And more particularly, Stephen Hendry, when he won his seventh world title, uh, he was never the same again because he'd he'd reached that sort of ambition of his, which was to break the modern-day record. And I think his intensity went after that. Winning the World Championship is like climbing a mountain. It's that difficult. But then, of course, the only way is down. Um, And maybe he just needs something to happen. Maybe at a tournament like the Champion of Champions, which he's won three times, to spark back into life, I think it probably will happen. At the moment, he doesn't look like he's enjoying it that much, but, you know, things can change. And, and listen, Ronnie's stuck at the game for 30 years as a professional and a long time before that as well, playing. I don't think he will just suddenly walk away. I think, I think personally, Phil, I think, I think he'll continue. I guess the question is, can he continue, though, you know, at the top level for that much longer?
1: Well, this is not exactly a scientific response, but I'll just say Ronnie is Ronnie. We don't know what he's going to do. He could walk away. He could stay. He could say he's going to walk away and stay. He could say he's going to stay and walk away. That's the kind of persona he's had throughout his career. I was there when, as an 18-year-old, after losing to Ken Doherty in defence of the UK Championship title in 1994, he actually said he was going to retire. So it's been going on for a long time, this, you know, will he go, will he stay? My personal opinion is, for what it's worth is that he will stay, he will win more tournaments because he is so, so good. But he would be the first to agree with what I'm going to say now, and it's only a natural thing, this. He's not the player he was. I will say that getting to five finals last season, you see, in my mind, getting to five finals and losing them all is better than, say, getting to one final and winning it because to get to a final nowadays is such a Herculean effort because the circuit is so good. We've seen it. The number of century breaks in these German Masters qualifiers have been incredible. So to get to one final is a big achievement. To get to five when you're in your mid-40s is tremendous. But, of course, he's hoisted, you know, by his own petard, really, in the sense that he's been so good, we expect him to win titles time and time again. And when he isn't, then question marks arise. The will come a point, of course, inevitably. Where he's not going to be able to compete. He's not going to be able to sustain his place in the top 16, top 32. And then, because he has been so brilliant and such a genius, then I think that would be too much for him to bear. And then he would walk away. He might walk away temporarily. Who knows? And come back and, you know, in a blaze of glory, win another tournament. What we do know is this when he plays the best he can right now, that's still good enough to lift trophies.
0: I also think that he's always sort of thrived on sort of new, new challenges during his career. And it may be, I think one of the great tie-ups he had was with Ray Reardon. Um, we're talking sort of early 2000s, because let's be honest, Ronnie's not short of people telling him how great he is, but Ray Reardon was not one of those people. In that relationship, Ronnie looked up to Ray and he instilled great discipline in his game and indeed in his life, he won another world title. He was, you know, very, very good at that point. I mean, he's very good now, but I mean, he really was... You know, superb. Then um, I'm not suggesting Ray should come back on the road at the age of 89, but maybe uh, some some someone of that ilk maybe could, could help him. Anyway, we'll see. I don't to answer the question in the email though. Personally, I don't think it'll be his last season, but as as Phil's laid out, you just you just, you just don't know. Um, Paddy Healy he says, apologies for only stumbling across your podcast recently. I'm new to the world of podcasts in general, but I'm loving the first few snooker scenes I've heard so far. My question is about John Higgins. I know there was an article this year about how statistically he could be deemed the greatest ever, and it was mainly shot down as Ronnie and Stephen have won more. The point I wanted to raise is that Higgins now has a really valid claim to be seen as above Hendry in the all-time list. The longevity, staying in the top 16 for so long, still competing in big finals, and his standard at times is as good as ever. I know the criteria is world titles and other Triple Crown events. You see, you can tell Paddy hasn't listened to this podcast, mentioned the Triple Crown, but I, w- I won't go into that now. Um, I, I know the criteria... Please don't, titles. Dave. Please don't. No, no. Don't. I, no I, I, I said I won't and I won't. I, he said, I know the criteria is world titles and other Triple Crown events and Higgins has more tournaments available to him compared to Hendry. My question is, would you fa- who would you fancy to win, peak Hendry of the 90s or peak Higgins, say, 2007 to 2011? Well, I mean, this is... <laughs> This is a sort of game of opinions, of course. Firstly, I'd love to see that match. And and John was pretty handy in the 90s himself, let's be honest. Um, I think if... I, I would answer it this way. John Higgins is an all-time great. His performance, I think, at the Players' Championship last season was one of the best I've ever seen in any tournament by the person who won it. He just blew everyone away with all-round great snooker. He scored heavily. His tactical play was extraordinary. Every time he came to the table, he just looked like he'd win the frame. Um, so, absolutely, I think he, I think he's... An all-time great. Uh, if if his worst problem in life is that he's only considered to be the third best player ever to play snooker, that's not a bad, that's not a bad problem to have. When when myself and Neil Folds did our top uh, um, our greatest discussion, we, we put Ronnie one and Hendry two, and John would have been third. But you can put them in any order really. They're all great players. Maybe Phil, i we're guilty of doing this. Maybe we sort of spend too much time ranking ranking these people. And maybe we should just enjoy them for who they are.
1: Well, let's just go back to the Ronnie O'Sullivan discussion for a moment. John Higgins is in exactly the same boat as Ronnie is pretty much contemporaries. Higgins is an excellent player, brilliant still, but not as good as he was at his best. And this is where he was very much top of one particular category. And he remained so, actually, he was better than Hendry and he was better than O'Sullivan at shot selection. Mm-hmm. There's no doubt no doubt about that in my mind. His ability to identify what to do and when to do it unparalleled. Now, I'm not saying the execution of the shots was always perfect. Obviously, it wasn't. But he had that uncanny ability and still does to be able to play right shots, the correct shot time and time and time again. And that's something that Stephen and Ronnie, Fell, fell off particularly Hendry towards the end of his career the real career I'm going to call it before he came back from uh, retirement he was losing uh, some degree of his game and I think he was a little too aggressive went for too many pots he was pig-headed in that regard I think he'll be the, the first to agree with that and obviously with O'Sullivan at times he's been far far too loose he plays safe and he's got his head on you know that he's going to win the vast majority of matches but there have been times where he just plays gung ho snooker and you know then he's vulnerable with john higgins it's always what you get on the tin always and when he's at his best he's a joy to watch i would actually slightly tweak what you said about the players championship when you said it was one of the best performances i've ever seen to win a tournament for me it was the best performance it was absolutely immaculate He was beating top-class players and restricting them to a handful of points. And I spoke to him afterwards, actually, about a half an hour after he'd done all of his his media. We were in a a corridor at Milton Keynes, and he was just getting the lift down into the lobby. And I said, John, that's got to be the best you've ever played. And he agreed, because, of course, he's a a modest guy. He's not going to say that in public. But he just knew that that was the best he'd ever played. But the thing was... When he was at his best, he used to do that or near that three or four times a season. So when you come to to ranking people, it is difficult. I mean, look, in terms of career achievement, winning those seven world titles, Hendry's got to be up there. In terms of the fact that his best is the best, Ronnie O'Sullivan, that criteria, he's right up there as number one. But in terms of the way he plays the game, and how sensibly and how correctly he plays the game. I think Higgins is number one for that.
0: Yeah, it's, it's exactly it's exactly also what your own criteria is. I mean, if you look at dominance, no one's ever dominated like Stephen Hendry. He won the world title five years running. He won the Masters the first five times he played in it. Eventually lost 9-8 to Alan McManus in the decider in the final the year after. He won the UK three years running. He had dominance that they haven't had, but what they've got over him is longevity. They've lasted longer at the top over a longer spell so people will have their own opinions about what's better but as I say you know we can just celebrate them all and of course I I mean Hendry coming back playing I know a lot of people have got various opinions on that but actually seeing his name in the draw it it is quite special you know it is quite special he'll be there next week um, in in Milton Keynes for the English Open I know you know he's very unlikely to win it but just seeing him in it actually is is great for me Um, anyway we'll move on Uh, James Irwin he says, your, he have got two questions here. He says, your preview and review of the Northern Ireland Open were both great. It was clear how much you and the wider snooker media and community were looking forward to it. As, and as a Northern Irish snooker fanatic, I was delighted and proud that Belfast was hosting what felt like the first proper return of the snooker tour since the pandemic. The tournament delivered on every level once again. It's great hearing and reading all the positive feedback about the tournament in Belfast. I wanted to pick up on one point you made last week, as well as ask a question about the tournament. I attended both semifinals on Saturday and loved it been to the waterfront hall many times to see a range of events, music concerts, comedy shows, film screening, and have even performed there many years ago in my old school. And it really is an excellent auditorium acoustically, and with most seats giving a good view. I know they added more seats to the final after Mark Allen got through and the atmosphere came across well on TV coverage. As I sat there on Saturday, I was scanning the auditorium for where the commentary box was and could not work it out. I saw one possible spot in an elevated position looking down from above the scorer's position behind the top of the table, but could not be sure. Were you in a spot like that overlooking the table or were you in a different room in the waterfront using screens? If it was the latter, did you feel that took away slightly from your experience of the event? Or was a commentator, are you used to that, except for the few venues that accommodate a commentary box right by the arena, such as the Crucible? And if you're commentating from a different room, do you take the chance to sit in the arena with spectators when you're not working in order to soak up the atmosphere? Well, James, not only was I not in the arena, I wasn't in Belfast. Uh, I'm not, You know, this is not smoke and mirrors, we'll be honest because of the covid rules we would normally go but because of the covid rules that to keep numbers down so the studio people were there rachel and jimmy and, and, and alan the commentators were in london um so that's why you didn't see us we weren't there we will be in milton keynes next week because that doesn't involve for example a flight which was an extra complication um so i'm looking forward to being on site and our commentary box will be in the arena there but in belfast the reason you couldn't see us is because we were not there a lot of sport is done like this the bbc did the whole olympic games commentary from salford <laughs> rather than tokyo so this is this has been happening a lot recently just because of the you know the times we live in anyway the uh, second point he wants to make is he said you raised the issue well we had a couple of emails it wasn't so much me we had a couple of emails uh, from people complaining about bbc radio 5 live coverage of the tournament, which seemed to be zero and also the website as well attracting some criticism he says, you raise the issue of how the BBC covers the event and snooker more generally. I broadly agree with everything said by you and your fellow podcast listeners, especially in the case of the website, which, is, as we've all noted, only comes alive when the BBC is showing snooker and gives very little coverage of the wider tour. I did want to defend them a little, however, by highlighting the BBC Northern Ireland coverage, uh, that, that, that BBC Northern Ireland gave the tour decent coverage. Every morning on its flagship news programme, Good Morning Ulster, The sports bulletins included a brief readout of the previous day, a preview of the forthcoming day's play, with an emphasis on how Mark Allen was getting on for obvious reasons. Similar updates were included in the sports bulletins on its primetime TV news programme, Newsline, at 6.30 each evening. Furthermore, Good Morning Ulster carried a lengthy segment on the radio one morning, separate to the sports bulletin, in which one of the presenters attended the waterfront on the Wednesday and recorded a piece for the Thursday morning programme. He set the scene by whispering as he walked behind the scenes during play, with with the faint noise of shots and applause in the background, capturing the atmosphere really well for radio. He also spoke to Mark Allen, as well as to a representative of Will Snooker about the success of the tournament each year while they came to Belfast, and there were vox pops with fans attending the tournament. The studio presenters then spoke about it before moving on to the next item, highlighting how good it is to have top-class sport like this back in Belfast. The whole thing was a pleasant surprise and a nice piece for the wider Northern Ireland audience. However, that is the problem. It was the Northern Ireland audience only, except for those few people who might listen online from outside. I'm a big BBC fan and not a fan of BBC bashing. I consume a lot of their output and feel they generally provide an excellent service, but that's precisely the frustration with them. They demonstrate that when they want to, they can cover snooker brilliantly. It's just a pity that the decision makers in BBC Sport don't seem to want to prioritise it or at the very least give it consistent coverage that is commensurate with its popularity. Who knows, this might change over time, as the sport continues to flourish and if the right person gets promotion at the BBC well thanks uh, for that Joe it's, it's nice to hear that we've got so much coverage locally which is important of course um, in terms of driving ticket sales because not everyone always knows these events are on you know you can't assume people always know but it would have uh, I know that piqued some interest particularly for the final with Mark Allen uh, with Mark Allen coming through but I'm going to move on and Phil is still there by the way but I, I want to rattle through these to get to our discussion uh, so Mark gray has, has written about this same issue. He's, he's got three issues he mentions, but the, he, he starts with this one. And, and this is, uh, there's two things to say here. One, he's having a go, which is fine, I don't mind that. But two, we're now a show. He says, my biggest criticism, criticism of your show, I, <laughs> this might, might be a bit highfalutin there, Mark, but he says is that your, your anti-BBC bias shows a little too much, even if it's subconscious. Your, your, for instance, your criticism of the BBC website to coverage of the Northern Ireland Open would be more powerful if they weren't a bit one-eyed. A bit of searching around the ITV website found not a word of coverage of the tournament, mistake ridden or otherwise. I know that's not quite a light-for-like comparison, but even still, it's far from just the BBC who are weak in their coverage of the sport. Does Snooker really need in a modern media landscape, does Snooker really need in a media modern media modern media landscape to be relying on coverage from generalists like national TV channels or radio stations or newspapers? It seems minority sports are better relying on more specific coverage that podcasts, websites other modern media can provide. Well, Mark, I, it wasn't me having a go, actually, it was other people. <laughs> I was just reading out their emails um, and I said what I said and I stand by it. I didn't think their coverage was good enough. Um, they're, they are a publicly funded body. I'm a big BBC supporter. I think it's one of the great cultural institutions, probably the greatest, actually, in this country, because it's been a gateway to people discovering things like The Beatles and Shakespeare and actually... You know, even great writers like Charles Dickens and Jane Austen, people have seen the adaptations before they read the books in many cases. So, from from that side of it, it's it's been a great contribution, and and also, of course, to snooker by broadcasting it in the first place and continuing to do so. But that's as our previous correspondent said, um, is the frustration I guess is if they're not doing that um, and not reporting it. In terms of whether um, we need snooker on the on the radio and, and newspapers, I think so because you want people to discover it if people listen to this podcast now or snooker fans they haven't just downloaded it by accident they've downloaded it because they like snooker and what we want is in the general culture i guess phil uh, just to make sure you're still there is for people to discover the sport i mean you you wrote for the times for many many years the journal of record and the idea of course is that people sort of stumble across it and maybe then they become interested that way
1: absolutely and you know when you say about a, a minority sport, when you look back at the viewing figures for snooker over the years, on many occasions, it got bigger viewing figures than so-called majority sports. Look, when we won the Ashes back in 2005, I think the total viewing audience or the, the peak viewing audience for the, the World Championship that year was higher than any of the, the Ashes matches. So although it is a, a minority sport in terms of the, the media interest it creates, I think in terms of the viewing figures it generates, it isn't. Um, What I will say on one positive uh, note is that BBC Northern Ireland, historically, uh, as long as I've been on the circuit, and that's since 1988, have been absolutely brilliant in covering the game uh, on on the radio over there. Uh, Not just them either. BBC Scotland and BBC Wales also. Um, I sent in many a report on the, the Northern Ireland players. Back then it was Dennis, of course, Alex Higgins, Joe Swale, a little later on. And Northern Ireland always, always covered the game as it deserves to be covered.
0: Yeah, no, very, very true. I'm, I'm with apologies to Mark. I'm going to park his other two comments because like I say, we, we've got to get to our main subject. I'll come back to them at a later date, probably next week. But he does say, he's talking about um, he, he, sort of the, the different types of events and he says, I do miss the days when there were more fun snooker events, like the World Doubles or team events. I like the idea of a snooker version of the Ryder Cup, but other events could also be developed. I'm not a great fan of Neil Foles' suggestion, but the game could open itself to some different formats. Not everything needs to be sober, serious, ranking, red snooker. Well, as long-time listeners will know, Neil's suggestion was a doubles event, which which involves the doubles partners having to play each other. Um, so, So, for example, after the final... It's not a question of celebrating the victory. The, the two, Saints Davis and Mio, they would have to play off to see who's the winner. And we've had an email on this subject from Neil Foles. Okay, because someone wrote in last week about it, and Neil has responded. <coughs> I don't like to use terms like cry for help, but here we are. This is what he says. Uh, Neil says, "I'm replying to your emailer who suggested that my superb idea for a double single snooker event was not dissimilar to Squid Game." Now I should explain. Anyone listening who's Squid I have watched it subsequently. I said last week I hadn't seen it. I have watched it. It's a Korean series where uh, contestants uh, in, this, in this drama uh, get invited to play children's games and are basically killed off as, as, the, as the games go on. Anyway, he says, uh, 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 my superb idea was not to submit the Squid Game, but I would remind anyone who's interested, not many it seems, that it will be played under the official rules of the game of snooker, unlike the shootout, and will be played on an acceptance of fair play to all. I can assure your emailer that there won't be a round of matches where someone has to carve a perfect shape of an umbrella out of a honeycomb biscuit using a needle, as is the case with Squid Game. Also, anyone who loses their match can depart safe from the knowledge that it's only a game, and to bring an old cliche to life, nobody died out there, which clearly isn't the case with Squid Game either. Moving on, I've heard a few keen snooker fans saying they would like to see a doubles event and even scotch doubles, but a whole tournament played in this form wouldn't bring about watchable snooker. Based in the 80s, the general public saw some great snooker moments, but conversely, they would also watch any old dross, and so a modern-day Hoffmeister doubles event wouldn't cut it now. NB, I participated in numerous of the matches labelled absolute dross, so I would know. However, a random draw event with doubles, singles, and a general necessity to survive to the next phase is what our great game is missing. It could even be played out in darts, tennis, or other such sports which have individual qualities victorious doubles team, who then try to beat each other in the next round, brings about the intrigue for me. I sent my model of the event to Barry Hearn, who thought the concept was a steaming pile of manure. But we haven't heard the last of this event, trust me. This will come back to bite him in the same way that Newsweek's criticism of the Beatles in 1964 proves that they didn't have the vision to spot the huge potential in front of them. Anyone interested in seeing the format I've devised can DM me on Twitter and I'd be happy to unveil it to them. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Neil. That, that email arrived worryingly late at night. I don't know if drinks have been taken. I'm not suggesting they had. But anyway, we, that, that's his idea. I don't think we've heard your opinion on this, Phil. A doubles event where the, par- the pairings have to then play each other.
1: Well, it seems OK to me, and that's being diplomatic. Yes. What I will say about this discussion is this. Do not, under any circumstances, ever, ever consider a snooker Scotch doubles event. I'll tell you why. It would last forever. <clears throat> it would be a sleep deprivation exercise. No one would be able to get any rhythm. The standard would be poor. No. Doubles, fine, but not Scotch doubles. Please, not Scotch doubles. What I will say is this. The problem we've got now with the World Cup and the lack of the World's Doubles Championship is that the World Cup is a doubles championship. The World Cup was ruined when it went to two-man teams. I know why they did it. It was because they wanted to get more competitive nations involved, and that's fine. If the World Cup comes back, it needs to be three-man teams. If it means the number of nations who've got a realistic chance of winning are reduced, I'm afraid that's a sacrifice you have to make. Three-man teams playing one frame each, in a best-of-nine-frame format, that is the way forward. It really is. It would be a good four- or five-day event, and I think it would really reinvigorate what was a really good tournament. I went to the World Cup, the best-ever World Cup, in 1996 in Bangkok when the dream team of Alan McManus, Stephen Hendry, and John Higgins won it. There were so many great stories there. The great semi final between the Republic of Ireland and England when Ken Doherty beat Ronnie O'Sullivan, in a a 50-plus-minute decider. So many great stories, so much good snooker, and that was because it was three-man teams. I think if you went to four-man teams, then you would disenfranchise so many nations, it wouldn't be worth doing. But three-man teams, I think, would be perfect, and I think, therefore, that box would be ticked. And then maybe, maybe, have a World Double's fine, but don't have it Scotch Double's.
0: Yeah, and also Neil's analogy about Barry Hearn and, and the Beatles. It, I think, it, actually, in that analogy, Barry Hearn is Brian Epstein. <laughs> I, think, I, I think he's pretty shrewd about things in general. He, he gave his opinion on Neil's idea. It wasn't a thumbs up. But Neil clearly is uh, is, is uh, persisting with it. And, um, yeah, all the best. And listen, if it, if it does well and he makes a lot of money from it, then, needless to say, he will have had the last laugh. Anyway... We're going to go on. Well, well, one, thing want, one, yeah. one thing I will say about
1: Neil, he's always been a big fan of the Championship League, and look at the success of that tournament
0: now. Well, still going strong, as you say. And and, and who knew there'd be two a year now? Anyway, um, during the Northern Ireland Open, a discussion in the Eurosport studio interested me. Ronnie O'Sullivan uh, was talking about the sort of big four now compared to 20 years ago. Now, 20 years ago, uh, he was part of that big four, and he still is now, although he didn't put himself in it. He said the big four now were Trump, uh, Selby, Robertson and he put Ding in now you know we all love Ding but he hasn't. he's not in the top four in the world I mean it's just a fact if you look at the rankings it's Trump, Selby Robertson and O'Sullivan they're the four best players in the world on the world rankings um, Ding hasn't won a tournament for two years so Ronnie was it was kind of humility actually but the fact is he is one of the big four now so let's look at some historic big fours in the 1970s we had Ray Rin, John Spencer Alex Siggins and Eddie Charlton they were the four Big players there. Obviously, Eddie didn't win the World Championship, but he got to three finals. Early 80s, Steve Davis, Terry Griffiths, Alex Siggins, Cliff Thorburn. They all won the World Championship from sort of 1979 into the early 80s. Um, 1990-ish, we've got 30 years ago. That was a real big form. These are the three we're going to look at, actually. So we start in 1990, Steve Davis, Stephen Hendry, Jimmy White and John Parrott. They actually reached the semi finals of the World Championship in 1990. Early 2000s, going back 20 years, we had Stephen Hendry, Ronnie O'Sullivan, John Higgins and Mark Williams. And in fact, they reached the semifinals of the 1999 World Championship. And now it's Trump, Selby O'Sullivan and Robertson. Now, the point Ronnie was making was that the big, the top four, the big four, whatever you want to call it, 20 years ago, would beat the big four now. Um, it's unprovable, but that's what he said. Uh, so what he's saying is that maybe the game hasn't actually moved on that much at the, at the top in that time. But, Phil, let's start with the, with the 30 years ago. And I think this is interesting because there are patterns in all three. You have there a player who's been at the top and is maybe starting to decline, Steve Davis. You've got a, you've got a player who's reached the top in his, and is about to dominate, Stephen Hendry. You've got a player who's been around winning titles. He's a great entertainer, flair player, Jimmy White. And then you've got John Parrot, who's sort of, in a way, bludgeoned, bludgeoned his way into that, that big four bit recently by winning tournaments. They were pretty formidable, those four, weren't they?
1: Yeah, I'm glad you started in the 90s, because the 70s, you're basically talking about a big three plus one. And then in the 80s, it was a little bit more watered down. So in the 90s, that really is the first legitimate big four. And we should never, ever underestimate just how good a player John Parrot was. Jimmy White was, as you say, the great entertainer, the people's champion. But, you know, around the turn of that decade, the 80s into the 90s, and then for the first few years, that Steve Davis, Stephen Hendry dynamic was absolutely electrifying. You weren't just talking about, you know, two of the top four. You were talking about who's the greatest ever. Is it going to be Davis or is it going to be Hendry? And that was the period of transition. But throughout the decade, definitely they were the best four players. And then you move forward a decade and you've got an even more powerful Big Four, in my opinion. Having said that, I think Ronnie's assertion that the Big Four of the 2000s would have beaten the Big Four now. Well, it's impossible, as you say, to quantify what would have happened. But I think the Big Four now would definitely have been, at the very least, highly competitive. Well, I think, I think when you get to the 2000s, then you're
0: talking about what I regard as the current era, if you like. Well, well, we'll get to that. I want to stay in 1990 first, around that time, because I, and I want to mention John Parrot actually, again, because he, he obviously was world champion 30 years ago, won it in 1991. Now, he had probably the biggest ever humiliation at the Crucible, that 18-3 defeat to Davis in the 89 final. You know, that's a very public drubbing, isn't it? Um, and, of course, famously had to go and do an exhibition in the, in the evening when there was no play. Two years later, he beat Davis in the semis and he beat Jimmy White in the final. And he played the first session of that final, the best session of his career, and one of the best sessions of any final at the World Championship. He won 7-0 in the first session. They played seven frames in those days. And I only discovered this the other day. Now that session only lasted 73 minutes. He won 7-0 in 73 minutes. Didn't miss a ball. There's footage online. He's sort of running around the table, actually. Just looks like he believes he can't miss. For him to win the World Championship at any time, obviously, is a great achievement. But in that era, with those other three players around, one of the great achievements, actually. Yeah, and of course, he
1: won the UK Championship as well Mm -hmm. that same year. That first session was one of the great sessions, actually, played at the Crucible. I think the one ball he missed in live play, if you want to call it that, was a black. It was off the spot, but the cue ball was quite close to a side cushion. And there were no great positional ambition uh, involved. So really by missing it, he didn't cost himself anything other than the seven points. He blew Jimmy away, led seven nil. And that was ultimately the, the margin of victory. Wasn't it 18-11. Yeah. when parrot was at his best, he got grit. He was very dedicated. He got a lot of nerve and he could pot so many crucial balls. And he was superb from distance also. And from under cushions. Well, different league
0: and um, Jimmy White as well obviously the, the other three of that big four were the three players that beat him in world finals Davis Hendry and, and Parrott so a, a lot is made understandably of the fact that he didn't win it but you know he was <laughs> he was losing to the best players I mean it wasn't you know he wasn't losing to people who absolutely should have beaten even Parrott you know that's an even match really at that point Parrott had broken through as a, as a tournament winner um, it, it just shows you know, how how tough it was that, you know, every time he got to a final, it was one of those.
1: Absolutely. Look, one of the greatest things, the greatest things you hear all the time, which is complete poppycock, is the fact that because Jimmy White didn't win the World Championship, he wasn't a great player. Of course he was. He was a better player in terms of his career achievements than some people who did win it. I always liken Jimmy White, actually, to someone who I know that he's met because he told me, uh, the golfer Colin Montgomery, he never won a major, but he won over 30 European Tour events. He won the European Tour Order of Merit eight times. It was an absolutely stellar career. And yet, people say, oh, you can't call him a great player because he never won a major. And then you think about all the all the golfers who won one major, who basically did that and nothing else. Jimmy had a wonderful career. He won, was it 10 world ranking events? Yeah. He won loads and loads and loads of invitation tournaments. He made a, a 147 at the Crucible, and he's entertained and given joy to millions of people. How can you not say his career wasn't great? Of course it was.
0: Well, moving on, so about 10 years on from that, Stephen Hendry is still one of the big four, but he's joined by three extraordinary players who, of course, are still all in the top eight now, of Sullivan, Higgins, and Williams. So Hendry's gone from being the junior member of the Big Four to the senior member, and he's trying to sort of—he's trying to sort of hold them off, isn't he? If, if you've seen Game of Thrones, he's like Hodor in Game of Thrones, trying to trying to hold off the hordes. Um, and it, you know, time time waits for no man. Eventually, they, they they overtook him, and his career declined. But at that point, a couple of years after his seventh world title, that is some Big Four, isn't it? Hendry, O'Sullivan, Higgins, and Williams.
1: Well, you know. To me, they talk about Snooker's golden era as being in the 1980s. Well, in terms of popularity, in terms of growth, and in terms of TV viewing figures and media exposure, yes, it was. But in terms of actually what happened on the table, in terms of standard, in terms of excellence, that era, the, the 2000s for me, was the real first golden era of the game. It was when the game moved forward. You look at the the number of breaks that were made at the Crucible in the 80s and 90s. Then all of a sudden, the number of centuries that were made in the 2000s exploded. And it wasn't just at the Crucible either. It was at other tournaments. And then you realise, yeah, the standard has taken a a quantum leap here. And I think what we're seeing today basically is a byproduct of what happened then.
0: Yeah, and of course, in terms of the four, there's also a three there. There's a three-way rivalry between the class of 92, O'Sullivan, Higgins and Williams. They all had their moments around that time. I mean, John was the first to win the World Championship. Mark was the next and Ronnie was the, was the last. And that's maybe would have been a surprise, you know, a few years before. You'd think maybe Ronnie would be the first. But, of course, they've all gone on to win it multiple times. Uh, and in the case of Williams and, and O'Sullivan, they've won it recently. John was in three finals recently. So they've got that longevity I spoke of earlier. Um, but around that time, actually, the, the player who was kind of probably the most consistent, was Mark Williams. He had a great spell uh, of winning first-round matches. He won 48 first-round matches in a row in ranking events. Um, And actually, we talk of the Triple Crown. Uh, (laughs) He actually did the Triple Crown in a series, in a season before it was a thing. It it partly became a thing, actually, off the back of that. He won all three, the UK, the Masters and the World, in the same season. Um, Only Hendry and Davis had done that before. Um, So although he's often seen partly as the sort of junior the junior member of the class of 92 it's not doesn't really apply does it he when he was at his best he was the best
1: absolutely and you know he really wanted it as well he gives this impression of being nonchalant and you know what will happen will happen i remember on one occasion of course the ranking system was very very different then and it was only revised at the end of every season so if you were world number 1 at the end of the world championship you're going to remain there for 12 months john Uh, Higgins was doing brilliantly. Stephen Hendry was also performing superbly, but Mark Williams, because he got through so many first rounds and then went deep in so many tournaments, was way ahead in the world rankings and he knew every single move that was being made. And one season, I know he wrapped it up basically in February, which is extraordinary when you consider the points on offer at the World Championship and other tournaments in late season. And when he did it and he won the match, to make sure that he was going to be world number one for the following season. He came into the press room, came up behind me and gave me a big hug and said, I'm world number one again, I'm world number one. He just knew exactly what the situation was and it meant so much to him. And I think it meant so much to him because he was
0: being chased by three giants. Absolutely. Um, What's interesting as well is sort of in that four in that big four at that time, Hendry has taken over the Davis role. He's taken over the role as the great, who's actually best days at, uh, behind him. And I guess now, if you look at the four now, that's kind of Ronnie O'Sullivan. I'm not I'm not saying Ronnie won't win more titles, but he's not going to win another 37 ranking events, clearly. So he's sort of become the senior member now of the big four. I worked out like Trump, Selby, O'Sullivan, Robertson, I reckon between them, they were in 19 finals last season. So, you know, that, that, that is, that is the, very much the elite... But, of course, Ronnie didn't win one. So is it actually a big three? Because if you look at the people who beat him in finals last season, Judd Trump beat him, Mark Selby beat him, Neil Robertson beat him, also John Higgins and Jordan Brown. But the point is the other three all beat him. Uh, Now, he's beaten them plenty of times as well, but I don't know, maybe that's why he didn't put himself in, Phil, because he hadn't won a tournament last year. I think he didn't put himself
1: in because he is... You know, modest, isn't he, in that kind of situation? And quite rightly so. It would have looked a bit incongruous had he started sort of spouting out his own name. But I think everyone realizes that when O'Sullivan's at his best, he's still very much in that upper echelon. So the only thing he said incorrect about that was that Ding was in the top four. Of mm. course, he isn't. He's not in the top six or eight at the moment. We very much hope that he does get back there because. It's not only great for him, who's a wonderful player to watch, but great for the game in general. But right now, it's preposterous to say he's in the top four. In terms of the way he builds breaks and the way he agrees with Ronnie O'Sullivan's sensibilities as to how to play the game properly, in Ronnie's mind, yes, he's, he's in the top four, but in terms of what he's achieving on the table, most definitely not. You know, you look at the, the top four now, and in many many respects. There are so many parallels between the top four now and the top four we've just discussed, Hendry, Williams, Higgins and O'Sullivan 20 years back. They're all so different. They all bring so much to the table and yet they're all compelling to watch in their own way.
0: Very much so. I mean, you you, you look at very different types of players. You know, Judd Trump and Mark Selby are both brilliant in their own way, but you've got a player brimming with natural talent and flair in Trump who's, who's actually also learnt the harder side of the game. You've got Selby who he seemed to learn the hard side of the game when he was a boy and has never lost it, but can also you know score as heavily as anybody. Um, and of course Neil Robertson as well, you know another left-hander there like Mark Williams, who he, 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 there's something very special about him actually. One of the I was speaking to a very ex- well-known player last season. Who told me he thinks Robertson's actually the best player in the game when everyone plays the best. And you know, you see him play like that tall championship we were at, Phil, in that final, particularly against Uh Sullivan. You know, made five, just an unbelievable um, level of play. So this is the level I guess everyone else has got to get to. You know, you look at the players maybe just under this level, people like Kyron, Mark Allen, you know, they win tournaments, Stephen Maguire, Ding, we've mentioned. On their day, you know, and they've been in the top four at various times as well. On their day, obviously, they can win. But this is another level, isn't it?
1: Absolutely. And, you know, they can all beat you in so many different ways. We all know about O'Sullivan's flair and the way he can knock in brakes and knock them off the shades. But when he wants to, he can be so, so clever in the safety department. Now, we've talked about Higgins before, actually. He's all-round game. I think he's second to none. He never gives you an inch. Okay, he might have an off day, but in terms of the shots he takes on, he never has an off day. Then you've got Neil Robertson, who, when he's concentrating and full of confidence, is just a colossus. You're right about that tour championship, you know. It's been the overall performance of Robertson to win that. It's been overshadowed by the fact that Higgins was just that notch above in winning the Players' Championship. But, you know, out of all of them, the one that intrigues me the most, obviously, you've got Judd Trump, who... I absolutely love to watch play because he genuinely can play shots that no one else can. Some of the shots he pulls off, and I'm not just talking about the exhibition shots at the end of frames that, you know, everybody raves about. They don't mean anything because he's 90 in front. I'm talking about live shots. Some of the shots he pulls off, no one else can. No one else would dare to. So he's in that one category of wonderful entertainer. But the guy who I absolutely... I'm drawn to also is Mark Selby because he's got something no one else has ever had. He is for me, we talk about the greatest of all time in different criteria. He's the greatest of all time in terms of grittiness and in terms of the fact he's prepared to be versatile. If he comes out using a a boxing analogy against a puncher, he can score heavily. If he comes out against someone who tries to tie him up, forget it. He's going to win whatever is thrown at him he can combat it and for me that really does get my juices going because i really respect him and also one thing you have to say about selby he has got absolutely incredible bottle
0: oh yeah i mean he's uh, yeah he's a, he's a, he's an absolute demon so we'll we'll wrap up and i'll just sort of sum up as well so the, the first big four we talked about davis henry white parrot if you look at the world championship final one of those players, at least one of those players, appeared in the World Championship Final every year from 1983 to 1997, inclusive. The next four, Hendry O'Sullivan, Higgins, Williams, at least one of those four appeared in every World Final from the following year, '98, until 2004, and several times afterwards, of course. And now, in this current spell, I guess the run starts in 2019 with Trump. Last year, Ronnie won it. This year, Selby won it. And... I'd be surprised if one of those four wasn't in the final next year. The question for you, Phil, which is impossible to answer, so I'm obviously going to ask it, is say that each of those four formed a team. I mean, it'd be a bit awkward because obviously Hendry and O'Sullivan would would be in two teams. But if they formed a a league team and they all played each other, which one would win?
1: (laughs) Well, that is an impossible question. I think what they should do, actually, is to play a doubles match and then the two winners (laughs) play each (laughs) other.
0: Sorry, sorry. (laughs) Commentate.
1: (laughs) Uh, Personally, look, I think the great winning machine at the moment, you have to say, is Selby because he can, I'm going back to my previous answer, he can do anything, can't he? If O'Sullivan plays his best, he wins. If Robertson plays his best, he wins. If Trump
0: plays his best, he wins. What I'm asking though is which of the, as a team, okay. So that as a four, which of the four would be, would come out on top? So it's not individual players; it's actually the the big. Which of the big four essentially is the best big four?
1: Right. Understand your question now. Yeah, I was just I was concentrating so much on having a go at Neil there, I, yeah. I actually lost my train <laughs> of thought. <laughs> and having a go at Neil is basically the you know the, the ultimate priority, isn't it? Really. Mm. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I, I personally think, uh, having thought about this at length last night when you posed the question to me initially, I personally think the current top four would just about edge any other top four in the game's history. And I'll tell you why this is the the answer. Because top fours don't exist in a vacuum, do they? They exist on the circuit with another 124 players. Now, in the 2000s, when you've got the big four we talked about before, Williams, Higgins, O'Sullivan and Hendry, the entire strength of the tour wasn't as great. So it was easier, not easy, but easier to get to last 16s, to get to quarterfinals and thereby give themselves a platform to go on and win titles. I think now the standard certainly in the top 32 is better than it was then 100% better in the top 64 than it was then. And so consequently, I think to give yourself the opportunity to go deep into a tournament, to give yourself the opportunity to lift some silverware, I think it's more difficult to do now, and yet they continue to do it. So on that basis, I would have to say the
0: guys right now. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of, when Ronnie said, because Ronnie went for the 20 years ago and I sort of agreed with him at the time, I, I, but I, I do also see where you're coming from. I mean, yeah, you're right. Time like The game has changed. There's more strength in depth, definitely. The players at the qualifiers last week, I noticed three players who made two centuries in a match and lost. Uh, Jamie Jones, Alexander Ersanbacher, Ashley Hugel, I think was the other one. You know, clearly playing great stuff and they're coming away with nothing to show for it. Um, the standard at that level now is so much higher. And of course, that puts pressure on, on the upper level, but that, it's that upper level. That everyone's trying to get to. Listen, it's a bit like we were saying about Hendry, Sullivan, and Higgins. You know, you can you can enjoy them all. They all they all serve their era as well. Um, and yeah, I think uh, we're gonna we're gonna see plenty more titles this season from uh, from those four. Um, Phil, thank you. Um, English Open next week, of course, and then we we really then get into the you know the real meat of the season. We got Champion of Champions, UK Championship, Scottish Open, World Grand Prix, Championship League, all before Christmas, and then after Christmas it will it all kicks off again so uh, yeah and also the European Masters qualifying this week as well for people who, who haven't seen enough snooker clearly um, we're proud members of the Sports Social Network check out their other podcasts you can email us at scene podcast at mail.com scene podcast at mail.com who's going to win the English Phil I'll, I'll just throw that curveball in at the, at the last moment OK, well, I'll <laughs> give you
1: a curveball in return. Yes. And, of course, in baseball, curveballs are the hardest things to hit. Yes. So I will give you this name. Ronnie O'Sullivan. Ah.
0: He's due. <laughs> OK, well, <laughs> we'll see. I mean, I, I, yeah, I, I, he could win it. He might not. I don't know. He's only ever won one of those home nations. but I don't think he's ever lost in the first round of the home nations. I think that's right. Um, and I believe it's David Lilly next week, the World's Seniors Champion, um, who plays him in the first round. Yeah, I, yeah, I, 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 th- I suspect, and here's the thing, because Ding jong who we mentioned earlier, he will be hoping, won't he, for someone who's already in the Champion of Champions to win that English Open? Because if they do, he gets in the Champion of Champions.
1: Yeah, it's really still involved for that last place in the 16-man Champion of Champions. What a great tournament to look forward to, though, that, that is. It's going to be an absolutely blockbusting event up in Bolton. With O'Sullivan, I just think that it's just, in many respects, snooker, and I know I don't want to take anything away from the mysticism of it, but in many respects, it's law of averages, and sooner or later, sooner or later, he's going to
0: spark up. Yeah, and very often, as you will well know, very often when he's done something that's perceived as being bad, he bounces back immediately. When he walked out that UK Championship, he then went and won the Masters, when he did that rather famous press conference in China he went and won the world championship so maybe this is he's got whatever he's got out of his system yesterday maybe we'll see we'll see next week he's live on Eurosport and Quest in the UK and uh, various other platforms around the world but that's it Phil thank you and uh, we will we, we will return for more next week Sport social podcast network.